Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. The great God of the universe, the one true God, set the Israelites free from their bondage in Egypt. He had provided for them through the wilderness as they journeyed to the land promised to their forefathers. God had been revealing His nature to them by giving Moses the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. But we will see the Israelites had already violated their covenant and agreement with God. We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Throughout Genesis, we had watched as God had made promises to each and every generation. And and now we come to the place where in Exodus, the, the nation is born down there in Egypt. And God has made a promise to that new nation. And God is bringing them. He's made three promises, actually. He said, I will bring you out of Egypt. I'll bring you into the promised land. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. We'll have a relationship together. We're in that promise right now about him having a relationship with them. He's already fulfilled the first one, brought them out of Egypt with might and power. Now he is establishing the basis upon which they will have a relationship with him, the covenant they make with God. And we finished in Exodus so far learning about God's instructions to Moses for how the people were to worship him. And as such, our attention now returns to the people below. What were they doing while Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days? Well, we're going to find out they weren't doing anything. (laughs) They certainly weren't moving forward in their relationship with God. And while God's presence is right there on the mountain, Mount Sinai, right there for them to see, at some point they begin to lose the consciousness of it. And in that idleness, they decided to settle for a cheap imitation called religious ritual something that can never satisfy. So Exodus 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what is become of him. The phrase there, delayed, it just means to extend a period of time longer than is appropriate. What was inappropriate about Moses being up there was not that he was up there for 40 days. It just was different than their expectation. You know, God has given our brains an amazing capacity to process information. But the mind is more than neurons and axons and nerve fibers which carry signals. The Bible teaches that our mind is a part of our souls. And therefore, it interacts with the logical and emotional functions of the brain. This is why I can know something is absolutely horrible for me but lack the willpower to act on that knowledge because there are other factors involved in my decision-making process. Now, this becomes especially dangerous when our limited knowledge combines with a soulless struggle to challenge what God has said. This is exactly what happened as the days Moses was unseen in the cloud began to add up. See, Moses' instructions in chapter 24, verse 14, were clear. And he said unto the elders, Tarry you here for us until we come again unto you. That was a simple instruction. We are coming back. Stay here until we come back. Don't do anything. And Aaron and her in charge if you have any need. The funny thing, though, is that time has a way of casting doubt. I imagine what the conversation was probably like around the camp in Israel. Any word from Joshua? Nope. The next day comes by. Man, Moses sure has been up there a long time. Do you happen to see how much food he took with him? Nope. Did you? Nope. And eventually, word would come that he didn't bring any food with him. (laughs) And now he's been up in that cloud for 40 days without food, without water, without any type of natural sustenance. And then the brain starts working on that. There's no way Moses is still alive up there. Come on. Nobody can go without food and water for that long. And we saw what he walked into. There was lightning and fire and everything in there. I imagine he walked in there and God just turned him into a crispy critter. And then, as one more day goes by, you know, I wonder if, He did something wrong when he went up there and God killed him. You don't think we're next, do you? And as the days wore on, 
they started to realize we need to do something before we end up like Moses. Somebody needs to go talk to Aaron. Somebody needs to do something. And then that someone leads to a delegation which come up with a plan. And they come to Aaron and they say unto him, up. <laughs> In other words, it means stand up, Aaron. And the idea is sitting around doing nothing. He's just waiting for Moses to get back. The instructions were, wait till Moses gets back. Just wait here. And then they say, get up. Quit slacking, Aaron. We need a new leader and you're it. Up. You make us gods. Not only are you the leader, but we've already figured out what you need to do as the leader too. (laughs) Isn't it always good when someone pushes you to the front and says, hey, do something stupid. And the crazy thing is Aaron falls for it. We'll see in a second. He say, up, here's our plan. Why don't you make us gods, which shall go before us? You need to make us gods to lead us to our destination. Otherwise, we're just going to die out here. We're not going anywhere. Nothing's going on. Make us gods that will lead us to our destination. And you know, they say, as for this man Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. There is so much wrong in this one verse. I mean, and it gets worse too. But there's so much wrong in this one verse, it's hard to even begin somewhere. The scenario that unfolds in the next few verses stands in such ugly contrast to the beauty of all God's instruction to Moses up on the mountain. Like where we've been living the last few Sunday nights and learning about the tabernacle and learning about all that God has for us, you know, and how it all points to Jesus. I mean, it's been pretty cool, huh? It's almost like we're on the mountain with Moses. Like, wow, wow, that's awesome. And it's like somebody just took like a big, huge blot of mess and went into the Bible and went, bleh. (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, that's what it's like. Everything's wonderful and great. And then you come here and you're like, oh, beauty is right side by side with this ugliness here. We see the unauthorized worship of idols in contrast to the authorized worship in the tabernacle. We see the truth of the one living God in contrast to multiple gods of metal. We see the holy love of God on contrast with the sensual sin of idolatry side by side, right next to each other. But you know, it all begins with the battle of the mind. See, God told Moses to come up and Moses said he would come back down with the instructions for how they would worship. And because they did not rein in their thoughts and their emotions to the obedience of Christ, their mind wandered to a place it should have never gone. I hear people say all the time, well, doesn't God expect me to use the brain he gave me? Yes, he expects you to submit it to his revealed truth because he's the one who knows everything and not you. God didn't give you a brain so you could just use it. People use their brains in all sorts of horrible ways. God gave you a brain to use it. No, I've seen people use their brains. Some of the most intelligent, the most educated, most diabolical people have used their brains. He didn't give you a brain to use it. He gave you a brain to submit it for a use that glorifies him. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. These verses have been so helpful to me in my Christian life because this is where every battle is fought from a practical sense. Obviously, it's fought from a spiritual sense of being filled with God's spirit. But from a practical sense, this is where every battle is fought. If you have marriage problems, this is where you practically fight that battle. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal or physical. But instead, they're mighty through God. The implication is they're spiritual. And they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So what are they? Well, here he says it. Casting down imaginations. Casting down, literally what that word imaginations means is arguments of the mind. Casting down the arguments that your mind brings up. Taking them and just throwing them down. And every high thing, it should be translated proud thought, that exalts itself against or in opposition to what we know about God, the knowledge of God. Any thought that comes into my mind that is an argument or is a proud thought that stands in opposition to what I know about God, the Bible says I'm going to take that thing and I'm to wrap it up and cast it down. I'm not to hold it in my mind and allow it to bounce around in there. Instead, I'm to bring into captivity every thought that I have to the obedience of Christ. This is where we fight those battles. It's in the mind. And they didn't do that. 
So they lost that battle. Now we go back to Exodus. We also see that from there we have to talk about disobedience. Taking a course of action that God clearly forbids because we think we know better than him how to approach a situation. Israel here looked at it and they thought, we don't know what's going on with Moses. We're not making any forward progress. If we stay here, we're probably going to end up like that guy. So Aaron, make us some new gods, even though God had already told them the very basics of this was, you shall have no God before me. Or more particularly, in this case, you shall not make a graven image unto me, as we'll see in a moment. They violated God's clearly revealed command because they thought they knew better about how to approach a situation. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths or make them straight. We have to talk about leadership here. A good leader listens to those he's leading. He surrounds himself with people who can help him do a better job of leading, but he must never be a puppet for those who tell him what to do. Part of being a good leader is turning to those who would attempt to force your hand, but want no responsibility and say, no. You know, it's funny. People will come to me and say, we should do this. And I say, that's great. You should head it up. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, then don't, why are you coming to me? (laughs) (laughs) I don't have the heart for it. You do. The idea here is that when someone really has a heart for something, they're happy to step up and serve in that area. Aaron was a man who I I do believe loved God, although he really goes down in our estimation from this whole event. But you know what? He was a poor leader. A man like this should never be a leader. We look at this whole situation here and we say, how do a people who've seen everything they did and were living in the visible sight of God's fiery presence come to this conclusion? The more obvious problem that we see is that they were spiritually idle. Jerome, who was the great scholar of the fourth century, said, one who is idle will likely come to do evil. Eventually, that changed to the more popular phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And while the phrase isn't biblical, the principle is. (laughs) See, God designed us to grow spiritually. And when we're not, we sense an emptiness in our lives. And if we don't respond to that emptiness by drawing close to God, we begin to lose consciousness of his presence. And when that happens, we very much feel the need to do something. And so the next logical step is to seek some quick fix to restore it. And this usually results in a cheap imitation, often in the form of a ritualistic substitute. See, before we even get to the golden calf, we must reflect on the sadness of verse 1 here. Moses is on the mount for the sole purpose of learning how they might progress in their relationship with God and how terribly sad to dump all the goodness of God aside for the comfort of religious progress, of forward motion of activity, of ritualistic motion. And have you done that lately? Maybe life seems bogged down and it's hard to see where God has taken you and Maybe you're not at the calf stage yet, but but you're in the doubting or the drifting stage. Listen, why not draw near to the Lord while you're waiting for what he's going to do, while you're waiting to know exactly what to do? Why not progress in your relationship even when it seems like there's no progression of your circumstances? In Psalm 27, that beautiful Psalm, David, where he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? And the Lord is strength of my life. What shall I fear? And, and he talks about all these things. And at the very end, he says, this I say then, wait on the Lord. This I say, wait on the Lord. In waiting on the Lord, it doesn't mean idleness. We still draw near to him every day. You know, there's decisions that have to be made. There's circumstances that we don't know what to do. But we don't have to be idle in that. We pray and we seek his face. We continue to know him better each and every day. And that continues our journey and our relationship with him. And if we don't do that and we're not hearing from him, sometimes that idleness, it turns us to a place where we try to substitute our relationship with God for religious activity. And that never satisfies Well, they say, as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, 
We don't know what's become of him. And there is great contempt in that statement. It's almost like, boy, following that guy was a mistake. What a loser. He brought us up out of Egypt, and now he's gone. But you know what? A man didn't bring them up out of Egypt. He led them as God brought them out of Egypt. God was the one who brought them out. See, Israel had been following a leader when they should have been following the leader. And just as spiritual idleness stunts spiritual growth, so does relating to God solely through a person, a leader, or any mentor. Moses was very instrumental in everything that happened to Egypt and brought them all the way to the mountain. He was instrumental in that process. And God used his leaders to influence our lives. But the goal, why he brings them into our life, is so we draw nearer to our chief leader, Jesus, right? Israel hadn't done that. See, their eyes were all on Moses. And now Moses had left them with unfulfilled expectations. So they're ready to move on. And so I would also ask you tonight, before we even get into the calf itself, are you relating to God solely through the study life or the prayer life or the godly life of your spiritual leaders? Our hope here at Calvary Chapel is to be faithful in all those areas, that you can look at my study life or the leadership here, their prayer lives and their godly lives, their practical everyday living, and could see a good example. We want to be faithful in all those areas, but man, we are a poor substitute for Jesus, (laughs) a very poor one. Study to show yourself approved. Seek his face. You live it out. And then you lead someone else to the same place. It says here, And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them unto me. What Aaron should have said is, Sit down and repent. Moses said he's coming back and he will. We're going to wait till he does. End of story. And you know what? When someone demands that you do something stupid, say exactly that. Sit down and repent. I've had people come to me and they've said some things and begun to accuse of things or say things that weren't true. And I just look them in the eye and I said, sit down. What you said is wrong. You need to repent. And we're done. (laughs) Okay, we're done here. This doesn't, this needs to go any further. There's no reason to continue this conversation. Everything we're talking about isn't true. There's no basis for it in God's word. We're done. You need to repent and let's move on. And that's what he should have done. Unfortunately, Aaron did not. Tragedy results because of it. Aaron presumed the ability to lead and he assumed their demanded role. And so he says, well, here's an idea. Break off the golden earrings which are in your family's ears and bring them back to me. The word break off actually means to tear off. And how different is the offering, the free will offering that God was going to ask Israel for from this? The Lord says, hey, whoever's heart's been touched, bring this, all these various supplies. And Aaron's like, man, yank that stuff off their ears and bring it to me. Oh, the pain that our sin brings to us and those around us. The pain when we put things in front of God and we do stupid things like this. And all the people broke off, verse 3, their golden earrings which were in their ears. And they brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand. And he fashioned it with a graving tool. After that, he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That word molten, this is the word common one used for ancient idols, which means it wasn't entirely all metal. The base was actually wood, and then it would be covered with a gold plate over it, which would then be chiseled into the likeness. In this case, it says calf in the King James, but it would have been a bull. We understand this is exactly what was going on because when Moses describes how he destroys it, he talks about smashing it into pieces and burning it. And you're not going to be able to do that with gold per se. You can melt the gold, but you're not going to burn it into pieces. He says that's what you're going to do with the wood. And so... You know, we know that that's what it was made of. Now, while the bull represented the Egyptian god Apis, this passage is clear that that's not what Aaron's goal was. Aaron realized, you know what? They've lost sight of the process. I'm going to give them a visible representation of Jehovah that they can worship and they can do rituals and sacrifices and we can have a relationship with God and we can move on. That was his thinking. I don't know why he thought that, but that's what he's thinking. He was seeking to progress in their worship of Jehovah, but without any of the knowledge that Moses was receiving. And so he does it as Israel had learned from Egypt. 
in the form of an idol. And the people clearly understand that this is what Aaron's done by their response. Because he brings it out and they say, look guys, these are your gods, O Israel. It must have been more than one. These are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, not the idol, of course, when he saw their response, he's going, oh, it worked. This is good. And man, that is a bad thing when you're responding to a crowd because you're getting a vibe from the crowd. You're going, ooh, they like this. I'll give them more. That is a bad thing because you know what we're going to find out it takes them to? Eventually, while they're partying everything, he's like, hey, guys, take your clothes off and let's just have unrestricted sex. And if that comes as shock value, it's because it's meant to. That's what he does at some point. The crazy part is that if you watch some of these guys, very well-known preachers today, and you hear what they have to say, and you ask the question of what in the world would allow you to fix your mouth to say something like that? Man, they're feeling that vibe from the crowd. So Aaron, when he starts feeling that vibe coming in from the crowd, the positive response, he says, hey, let's build an altar before this thing. And so he built an altar, and he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. We often think when we look at this, we go, how could they? Like I said, this isn't a violation of the first commandment to have no other God. It's a violation of the second commandment to make no graven image. Now, whether Aaron understands he's violated that commandment or not, things are going good. They're making progress. So what's next? Well, let's do what everything else, everybody else does. Offer sacrifices and celebrate a holiday. One of the reasons that Moses was receiving instructions up on the mountain on how they were to worship God is because the way the rest of mankind worships their gods was nothing like God how it was supposed to be worshipped. Nothing. See, Aaron may be seeing progress, but it's all in the wrong direction. And it culminates here in verse 6. And so, the next morning, they rose up early on the morrow, and they offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings, no sin offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink. And then here's where it culminates. They rose up to play. The word there, to play, it means to engage in conjugal caresses. The implication is that this took place in a public, unfettered manner. Like many of the pagan festivals, things quickly descended into a drunken orgy right at the very moment Moses was about to leave God's presence with the gift of the two tablets. And can you think of a more horrid clash? Verse 7, The Lord said unto Moses, Go, get you down, for your people, which you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. My mind has such great difficulty placing these two events side by side. Of Moses up on the mountain, receiving all these benefits from the Lord, all the instruction in the presence of God, and all this ugliness going on right down below. But there it is, while it's happening right in front of the Lord, the Lord pipes up to Moses, and he says, Moses, you need to go. You need to get down there, for your people, which you have brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have brought ruin upon themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, for they have made them a molten calf, and they have worshipped it, and they have sacrificed thereunto, and they said, These be your gods, O Israel, which have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You know, I have heard people actually try to argue that God doesn't know everything, that he learns things like we do, that he's not eternal, that he doesn't know the future. Listen, he's up on the mountain, and he recites exactly what they've done. You're not going to be able to defend that position biblically. He recites exactly what they've done to Moses. You know what they've done? Let me tell you what they've done. Notice he calls them your people, which you brought up out of the land of Egypt. (laughs) You know, Moses, they're not my people anymore because my people don't do those things. In all seriousness, God speaks of his people, the Israel, as if he's disowned them. And there's plenty of reason for him to do so. They've clearly violated the terms of the blood covenant. Whatever you want us to do, Lord, we'll do it. Okay, here's just 10 things. Not that much. (laughs) And they've already blown it. And yet, as God says these things, your people who you brought up, there's so much sadness in it because that's not what God wanted. That's not what he wanted. And yet, he says they couldn't even wait till you got down the mountain with the first set of instructions before they've gone their own way. 
Now, why does God tell Moses this? Well, he does because Moses is the mediator of the covenant. He's the deal broker. He's Israel's appointed representative in the deal. So he needs to go down there and he needs to go repair things. Go get down. You need to fix this mess, Moses. But you know, before he can go down, the Lord actually decides, you know what? No, Moses, there's no fixing this. They're just going to do it again. So look at verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Let's get some context here, okay? This is going on. The Lord turns to Moses. He's just given him those two beautiful tablets as a memorial of the time they've had up there, this beautiful gift from God written with his own hand. Moses had nothing to do with it. And now all of a sudden, this happens. And the Lord turns to Moses and says, Moses, go down there. and you need to deal with your people. This deal, this covenant's at risk because of what they've done. And then Moses turns to go and he says, you know what? Wait a second. Actually, I know this people. I know what they're like. They are stiff-necked. And so you know what? Don't go down. Get out of my way. I'm not bothering with it anymore. I'm just going to wipe them all out. And then I'll start over and make a new nation from you. Now, Moses, you got to think for him, he's got to be going, what? Wait, wait a second. I mean, I mean, this is horrible news that they're doing this. And, and um, you send me down, but now before I even take a step, you recall me back. And now you're going to wipe them all out and there's no deal anymore. What? This can be a very confusing passage because it seems like God changes his mind on a couple occasions. We wonder which, like, okay, God, are you kind of, you know, are you bipolar? You know, are you, you know, I'll go fix it. No, you know what? Forget it. I'm done with them. You know, I mean, what's going on here really? Well, the first thing the Lord is just, he mentions, I have seen, I have observed this people. And you know what? They are a stiff-necked people. The word stiff-necked means stubborn and rebellious. Israel had no problem bowing their necks to worship the calf, but they wouldn't even yield to the simple command from God not to make a graven image of him. And so the Lord, you got to understand what he says first. He says, let me alone, which means let me rest. I'm done dealing. Don't go down there. And he mentions to him, I will make a great nation out of you. For Moses, the reason the Lord says this is God had made a promise to the patriarchs. He couldn't just wipe them all out and be done. So God says, you know what? I made a promise. I will keep it, but I'm going to start over with you and wipe the rest of them out and we'll begin from scratch. This is an entirely unexpected sequence of events. It is confusing at first when you read it. In fact, it seems way out of God's character, even with the severity of their sin, way out of God's character. Even when he came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, which was bad, what did the Lord say to Abraham? He came to Abraham and he said, shall I not tell my friend Abraham about what's on my heart here and what I'm about to do? And so he turns to Abraham and says, Abraham, the cry of the sin of Sodom, it's great, man. I need to do something about this. I'm going to destroy it. And Abraham's thinking, my nephew Lot's in that city, his family. It's truly God's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he appeals to God. He says, God, surely the Lord of all the earth will do what's right. You're not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. If there's 50 righteous, you'll save the city, right? And the Lord goes, of course, you're right. I am the Lord of all the earth and I do do what's right. So if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. And Abraham's thinking, ah, you know, I've been to Sodom. I don't know if I can get 50. How about 40? And the Lord's like, if there's, you're right. If there's 40, I still won't destroy the city. And finally, he gets him down to 10 because he's thinking, Lot, I don't know about his wife. I think she's saved. You know, he starts going through the list. He's thinking, I know there's got to be 10. And he stops there. And the Lord says, if there's 10, I won't destroy it. And even then, we see what God's response is afterwards is that he doesn't destroy it until he brings all the people out who were righteous. God doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. So even in that great judgment, God was gracious and merciful and patient. So Moses is hearing this and he's going, this doesn't seem to match with God's character. So to properly understand what's going on here, we need to establish what we already know is true. Number one, we already know that all Israel did not worship that calf. The Levites, we're going to learn later in this chapter, maintained their purity as we'll see later on. So wiping out the entire nation would have been unjust. Secondly, God's initial command to send Moses down to repair the arrangement by dealing with the sin of the people, that is what he wants. That is God's will in this. That's why he said that first. 
Thirdly, Moses has just had an amazing 40 days with God. This turn of events had to be incredibly shocking to him, heartbreaking, and frustrating. And you know what? Had the second option never been brought forth, God might not have had to destroy all the people. Moses might have went down and wiped them all out. You imagine here, Moses got these things. He's saying, Lord, it's been an awesome time. Lord's like, you know what, Moses? Go down there and fix these people. And Moses, as he probably, I mean, that's a long march and he's carrying these things. He's going, I'm going to get these people, you know. And by the time he got down there, and we know he's got an anger problem, by the way. By the time he got down there, I don't know if he would have been an accurate representative of God's heart to the people. And so Moses hears a second option and it catches his attention. In light of the things we do know, the traditional and correct interpretation here is that God had no intention of wiping Israel out. He longed to forgive. Sin is a big deal. It completely severs the connection we have with God Almighty and affects the people around us. But God desires to show mercy. All we must do is come to God, repentant of our sins, and forsake them. We have this access and freedom through the precious blood that was spilt for us by Jesus. God desires to show mercy. This is His heart for all people. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.